I think that Facebook has passed a threshold where it needs to have a bigger responsibility to its users, and it's, it's trying to figure that out now. The Cambridge Analytica scandal seems to have been ripped directly out of a James Bond script. It has everything. Global intrigue, unscrupulous political hacks, big data, Russians, a sharply dressed man with a British accent being paid by a billionaire to manipulate entire populations. There's even, and I couldn't make this up if I tried, a guy named Dr. Spectre who sparked the whole affair. His original name, by the way, was Alexander Kogan. He changed it after his work with Cambridge Analytica. Maybe more importantly, the story ripped the band-aid off a long, simmering unrest about the amount of data companies like Facebook and Google collect about, well, all of us, every day. It's a story with many dimensions, so many, in fact, that we've decided to release this week's interview into two parts. Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm Matt Cadwallader, and joining us for this double feature is Depayan Ghosh, a Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Shorenstein Center, who's here following stints at Facebook as a privacy and public policy advisor and the White House as a technology policy advisor. In this first part of our discussion, we're going to be focusing on how internet companies collect and use our data. And then we'll get into a discussion about whether it might be time for Congress to establish new regulations that govern the industry. Then, in part two, we're going to turn to politics and the ways that politicians and provocateurs alike are harnessing online advertising tools in ways that could be corrosive to democracy itself. So, without further ado, Depayan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Matt. I'm sitting here next to a stack of reports and articles, seemingly all written within the past week. Um, and after a couple of hours of reading, I feel like I'm starting to get a handle on the various dimensions of this Facebook Cambridge Analytica story. There seem to be several stories here that have all come together at the same time. And I wonder if you could help kind of pull them apart. Can we talk a little bit about, first of all, Cambridge Analytica, what this company was, what they were doing, and why it made the news? Well, uh, I don't think that we have the full details just yet. But what we what we seem to no, through the various reports about this uh, about this incident, is that sometime around 2013 or 2014, a person who is a Cambridge University professor, Alexander Kogan, gained access to uh, Facebook's APIs and conducted a survey of Facebook users. And I think around 270,000 people participated in that survey. Um, this was... Just to be clear, it seems as though uh, this was completely uh, fine with the users who did it. They participated in this survey. Um, what Kogan was also able to do is leverage the Graph API to pull out data of the friends of everyone that he surveyed. So, of course, given the fact that on average, I don't, I don't know how many average Facebook friends people have these days, but... You know, it could range from from fifty to uh, fifteen hundred, mm -hmm. um, but from from the two hundred seventy thousand, it seems as though he got to uh, fifty million, over fifty million. 
The Guardian reported that most of them were actually American voters. So just a just a vast quantity of data, and uh, and of course, what has additionally been reported is that he breached his policy with Facebook in sharing that data with Cambridge Analytica via a, a commercial venture of some kind mm-hmm. uh, outside of his academic hat. So that's how Cambridge got access to so many people's sensitive data. It sort of sounds like to me, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that what Cambridge Analytica did was essentially siphon off some of the data that Facebook was kind of leaving open and doing what Facebook was already doing just for their own customized uh, uh, uses, because Facebook really does the same things with the pro- you know profiling people and serving ads. Is that correct? Well, I, I think that the things that were atypical of this whole incident are a third party illegitimately gaining access to uh, very sensitive data here. It includes personally identifiable information as well as behavioral data, what's known as behavioral data. Um, and so what they are able to determine is that Jane Doe uh, is Jane Doe and she lives in a particular place and has a particular Facebook user ID and a phone number and an email address as well as what she is interested in. And all that interest data about her interests, preferences, beliefs, behaviors, and so on and so forth, uh, those types of information uh, can be used to determine things about Jane um, with some degree of confidence. And so I do think there is something to this. Um, I do think that, uh, for example, when you know somebody lives in a particular neighborhood and when you know that they, they look at certain types of products online, you can start making inference about, inferences about their socioeconomic class. There's no doubt about that. And this whole industry does that. It's not just Facebook. It's, it's this, this is the way that the digital advertising industry works. And it's premised on three pillars. The first is the creation of extraordinarily compelling services. This in, in, the, in the Facebook universe, it, it includes the big blue app, but it, but it obviously includes Instagram and Messenger. Um, and there are other companies in the sector too that, that have... Um, really compelling products like uh, like Google Search and and Snapchat and uh, Twitter and everybody else. So that's the first pillar: the creation of a compelling service that that drives users to look at your platform. And what that does it, is it gives you ad space. The second pillar is the is the collection of user data, and that collection happens all the time. As we're, as we're scrolling through news feeds, as we're searching for things on Google, as we're hovering over the news article, all of these send signals to these companies within their walled gardens of data that we're interested in certain things. And of course, on top of that, they know who we are and where we live. Um, and then the third pillar is combining those first two to create the third pillar, uh, the targeted advertising platform which allows any interested party, whether it's the Trump campaign or the Hillary campaign or Cambridge Analytica or Reebok or Nike or um, whatever it might be, uh, that wants to influence people, they use a combination of the data that they know about you, 
and the ad space that they can leverage to send you highly targeted ads. You mentioned before things like likes are a pretty good uh, indicator of behavior. Uh, What other ways are these companies collecting information about people? There's off-platform data collection as well as on-platform data collection. On-platform is hovers of your mouse cursor over over certain content, clicking on likes, um, searching for the the latest line of Air Jordans on on Google, those are those are clearly on platform signals that are sent to the internet companies. Increasingly, they also collect data off platform. So when you when you give these apps like Twitter or or um, or Facebook or Google um, access to your location on your phone, um, they are able to, uh, of course, know where you are. Um, and knowing where you are with uh, address uh, level precision uh, can again it can send signals to these companies as to what you're interested in mm-hmm. and who your friends are and uh, what you like and don't like and what types of business establishments you visit and what kind of person you are. <laughs> um, so uh, that and that's just one example of off off platform data collection and. Diving deeper into location data collection, it's not just GPS. They they use a variety of of different location technologies, including cell uh, cell data, uh, cell, uh, data from from the cellular network, uh, Wi-Fi data. Um, uh, these these new tools called uh, uh, beacons. Um, mm-hmm. All of these are used uh, by the industry. To, to understand where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there, there are also uh, beacons in the form of uh, cookies, right? Uh, that yeah. uh, follow what you're doing, even when you're not, say, on Facebook, when you're on a different site. Absolutely. So um, it's, I, I'm glad you bring that up. Uh, a lot of people are just not aware of the fact that when you visit a third-party website, let's call it the New York Times or um, uh, or, or Reebok.com, not, not, I don't know whether they have these specific tools I'm about to talk about but uh, and, and web technologies that I'm about to talk about, but um, oftentimes they'll have what's known as a Facebook pixel or um, cookies from other, webs, uh, from other Internet websites like Google or, or Twitter. Um, that are kind of installed on their websites but are invisible to the user. So um, as soon as you go to, let's say, this third-party website like Reebok.com, and let's say there's a Facebook pixel on that website, what it means is that Reebok.com needs to pull pull the data from Facebook's servers to render that pixel on its site. So in transmitting that information over to Reebok from Facebook, Facebook knows that you, the user, are visiting that website because that cookie uh, is not only, the the data in that is not only being sent over to the website, it also contains some code that enables Reebok and, and through Reebok Facebook to collect a little bit more information about you in terms of your engagement on that mm-hmm. web page, um, and this is, uh, you know, this is a there is a broad reach across the internet of this kind of cookie technology. Um, another uh, surprising fact for most people is that it is 
a huge practice in, in email as well. So uh, I, I don't know the specific numbers, but uh, something in the order of half of your emails will have cookies in them. And it's, it's, a, it's a practice that most users might regard as a privacy invasion, um, but they just don't know about it. I hear a lot of people talking about, you know, they hear about all of this happening and they say, ah, I really should delete Facebook. But it sounds like that isn't exactly uh, <laughs> a broad fix either. Well, I think that we just really need to understand how these how these platforms work and use them accordingly. Privacy is a very cloudy concept that means something different to everybody. Some people will go so far as to never download Facebook or never initiate a Gmail account, whereas others will download all of these apps and use them as though they're they're speaking in the real world with a small set of their close friends. The Cambridge Analytica scandal is a pretty good um, example of 270,000 people took the survey, but 50 million people were exposed because they were just friends of the people who took the survey and agreed to whatever the, the stipulations were for the survey. Absolutely. Yeah. And more broadly, let's say I let's say I have a Gmail account and I'm communicating with a friend who who doesn't. And he doesn't because he has decided that he doesn't want to be engaged in internet platforms and he does he doesn't want to share his data. Well, the thing is that he's going to have to share his data with Google be, by virtue of communicating with me. Mm. You're right to point out that we're not necessarily in control, and we need to we need to really analyze what is going on in this industry. A recent poll conducted by Axios and SurveyMonkey found that Facebook, in particular, has seen its um, approval rating, I guess, drop by twice as much in the last six months as uh, any other major tech company out there. But Facebook certainly isn't alone in this data collection. Just about any service that is advertising to end users, Google, Twitter. Why do you think Facebook is bearing the brunt of this? Uh, this onslaught? It's a, it's a difficult question to answer, but first of all, this breach of policy happened with Facebook. Mm -hmm. I think that Facebook is very unique in the sense that we try to be ourselves on Facebook, and Facebook has such a huge platform. I, I think that the company has passed a threshold where it just, it, it needs to have a, a, a bigger responsibility to its users. And it's it's trying to figure that out now. It occurs to me that when you're using something like Google, uh, you're inputting things which are probably more true about yourself. You know, you're asking about uh, <laughs> that, yeah. uh, that pimple or how to get yeah. rid of that, that kind of thing. Um, but you're asking Google for information about the world, whereas Facebook, the service itself, is you're inputting information to share. So there is something uh, inherently vulnerable about it. Well, I, I think that there are a couple of things here. You're right to point out that Google has maybe the most powerful data to understand who you are, because in the industry, this is called intent. It, it has complete information about your intent in the sense that you're searching for the things you want. What's, what's slightly different about Facebook is that it, it has that information to an extent, Maybe not to the extent that Google knows your intent, but it has so many data points that it can it can really run these regressions and 
machine learning algorithms to to really drive at who you are. And the other thing is that it has the news feed. And the news feed is how you connect with your community more than any other. And as you're scrolling through it, you're seeing tremendous amounts of ad space. Uh, so I, I think all of that um, points us in this direction as well. We don't right now really have anything by way of uh, regulations on online data, online privacy. Uh, you know, in researching for this, I think I saw at least five or six articles saying it's time to regulate the internet. I'm curious, like, what, first of all, what would a regulation for data even look like if it existed at all? I love this question because it allows me to talk about my work before Facebook in the Obama White House. At the time, we were watching as the industry was growing stronger and stronger. The collection of data was was really powering its its business practices. What we saw is a proliferation of data. What we also saw was the Snowden disclosures. Um, and what we felt was a tremendous public sentiment for privacy rights. And, you know, I think I think not just in the United States, but around the world, especially in places like Europe, people were calling out for the American government to to really do something and, and put its foot in the ground and, and describe a prescriptive proposal, policy proposal that could that could really return to consumers their privacy rights. And in that year, 2015, uh, the Obama administration actually released what was described as a discussion draft, but it was essentially a 25-page legislative proposal, a bill you could say, but it, but it wasn't introduced in Congress. Instead, the White House and the Commerce Department uh, shared it publicly, but did so on a Friday night, knowing that it was going to be dead on arrival, that there was tremendous political gridlock on this issue and that it was going to be attacked from all all sides. Oh, those halcyon days when Friday nights were free of breaking news. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Uh, that's that, that, I guess that that practice applied back then. You can't you can't really do that anymore, I suppose. So back then, that legislative proposal had in it um, access, control, consent, uh, rights to rectification and assurance of accuracy of the data collected about you as the consumer, um, as well as some other uh, ancillary uh, pieces to that, including internal review boards within companies to determine whether or not practices are you know, meet the meet the bar or not, mm -hmm. uh, as well as uh, some high level standards around uh, security. We saw it as a necessity for many reasons. First of all, we believed in the policy, but second of all, I think we we really needed needed to drive this discussion a little bit and and help uh, develop something that that could be a blueprint for the future. Uh, and third, I think uh, there was a need to really show our international partners where we stand on these issues because you know at the time we had we had seen a an egregious harm happened happened to uh, to individuals mm -hmm. uh, around the world. 
one way that uh, this has been tackled already is in the European Union. Uh, in May, their general data protection regulation will go into effect. Can you talk a little bit about what I think it's called GDPR? Um, what that is, what it will mean for companies operating in the EU, and would something like that work here in the United States? Well, it's it it brings about all of the types of things that I just described: access, control, consent. Um, it it overchar it supercharges all those concepts and and prescribes them through this regulation, which is going to be enforced by potentially all the member states. And so, so I think that the industry is is really thinking hard about what kind of approach it takes it is it is one thing to say that we're going to comply with this regulation it's another to say that we're going to we're going to try to uh work around it in whatever way possible and I, I i think that i think the industry has to make that decision now and it's it's really thinking hard about how how it can uh, appease europe um, in a way that allows them to enjoy the tremendous market share that they that they have in the EU, mm-hmm. while also making sure that that the Europeans don't shut off uh, Silicon Valley's extension of services to uh, to the local population. Mm-hmm. One one of the things that uh, I think worries people here in the states about those regulations is. Just the concept of things like the right to be forgotten, the ability to petition a company like Google to remove information about yourself sure. um, from from their uh, search results. There's some worry that that could be used by, uh, you know, say politicians who wanted bad news about them removed from, you know, search results. Uh, I imagine if something like that existed today, uh, President Trump wouldn't have much compunction about <laughs> using it to try and remove what, stories that he didn't uh, agree with. Um, how do we structure regulations in such a way that people feel like they have control of their data um, in control of what it is they're sharing while still protecting, you know, uh, something that really is a fundamental uh, uh, part of democracy. Well, I think that I think we in the States, we have to be very thoughtful about regulating this industry. What I want to make clear here is that many of the regulations that we're seeing coming from Europe, whether it's GDPR or the e-privacy directive, when we're thinking about Europe, we have to be mindful of a couple of things. First, they they come from a deep history where privacy has a different role in society. America is, is of course, you know, we are a capitalist country. We do engage in light touch regulation and only step in when we see egregious harms to the public. And um, I think that in Europe, it, at least on this particular issue, it's it's the reverse. So I I note that. I think the second thing to to be mindful of here is that there could be as as Europe thinks about regulation. What we have to be, what we have to remember, is that the the leading internet companies in Europe are all California companies, and I don't think that anyone else around the world is entirely happy with that. <laughs> and so, when when foreign regulatory bodies 
come forward with uh, with regulations against uh, against the internet there could be there could be other other motives behind it too or at least there could be other sentiments that are carried forth in the regulations and laws that that are passed i think i think what what europe is doing is tremendous and you know i would i would highlight the efforts of uh, margaret vestager of the of the european commission who is who has been in, incredibly vocal about this industry and extremely thoughtful i think that the types of types of decisions she has made have really set the bar for the world and of course it's not you know we can't attribute all of this just to her it's her staff it's the european commission that um that enable uh these these uh calls to come forth um but all i would say is that we we need to we need to keep watching what's happening there and we need to keep uh keep all of that in mind as as we think about regulation here because to an extent silicon valley is going to be most responsive to washington dc Mark Zuckerberg recently in his uh sort of apology tour after after the Cambridge Analytica scandal um he expressed some willingness to or some openness to regulation um in stories kind of behind the scenes at Facebook it sounded like uh being regulated was one of the greatest fears um do you think these companies Facebook Google are they going to be helpful in developing this in a uh, pro-consumer way? Well, I think I think this is this is a hard question because nobody can know what is going through the minds of of these CEOs right now. They're in the crucible and Mark Zuckerberg especially is in a very difficult spot here. Uh first first things first, uh he's he's an incredible person and I think he's a well-intentioned human being. when we ask a ceo to do something that's for the consumer for the public that's a that's a very hard ask because a ceo has many stakeholders and you could say their principal stakeholder is their shareholders so i think we have to be mindful of that that to an extent when we ask a for profit company to do something that cuts into its revenues we are asking it to do something that is absolutely unnatural for the leader of its of, of of the company of course mark zuckerberg is the majority shareholder of facebook so i mean there is some uh, <laughs> uh self reference there i i think that his interviews over the past few days i think he did four with with wired recode new york times and and cnn and what came across to me is that he's willing to be thoughtful about this. Uh and I think we saw a number of really clear and positive concessions here. First that regulation is is a is a possibility and the company will be helpful uh to the extent it can be helpful. Um that he's he's potentially willing to uh to go on on the hill and testify that the company is taking certain steps going forward to try to Uh, police content on its platforms uh more responsibly and and more effectively and efficiently 
Um, and that a lot of that is going to be driven by technology development that is forthcoming, uh, particularly through artificial intelligence and the integration of that into their detection algorithms that can identify things like hate speech and uh, disinformation. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I think that he has left the door open and that's the right place to start. And that's the right place for us to end this first part of our discussion of Facebook and the fallout from the Cambridge Analytica scandal. In part two, we'll look into how data-driven online advertising technology has transformed political communications and the ways it could be, well, possibly corrosive to democracy itself. PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. I'm Matt Cadwallader. That's Matt Cad on Twitter. Jacob Beiser provides technical and editorial support. We'd love to hear from you. Send us your thoughts via email to policycast at hks.harvard.edu. See you next week.